If you'll open your Bibles to 2 Timothy, uh, we'll be continuing in that letter this evening. Last week, we went through the entirety of, of chapter 1, and um, this week, we will be talking through chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 21. I'll read it, and then we will pray and jump in. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. The word of the Lord reads, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you uh, for your word that you have revealed to us out of pure grace as we have already talked about tonight. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God of clarity, not confusion, of order and not chaos. And Lord, you have given us your word is our direction in all facets of life. And Lord, I, I pray that tonight you would impart wisdom to us through your word, not only that we may understand and know you more in our heads, but that we would be enlivened to love you more with our entire being, that we would be strengthened in our walk and we would grow in faithfulness in all aspects of life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So last week, like I mentioned, uh, we went through all of chapter 1, and Z talked about Paul's charge to Timothy to follow the pattern of sound teaching that he has had in his life. And in this section tonight, uh, Paul continues his charge with instructing Timothy to be faithful in entrusting or in guarding the flock that he has been entrusted with, even when it's difficult, even when it's hard. Uh, put plainly, Suffering is no excuse for unfaithfulness for Timothy. And that is true of the minister, and that's true for every believer. And so as we talk about 
Paul's directives to Timothy, think of it under that umbrella, that idea that, that suffering is no excuse to not do your best before the Lord in the spheres of responsibility that God has given you. And we'll unpack that as we move through the text. And so, starting in verse 1 and 2, we read, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So we see that right off the bat, Paul reminds Timothy of his foundation, that he knows that his work is difficult, he knows that Timothy is discouraged, and yet his strength is not reliant on his own ability or his own character or holiness, it's on the grace that is in Christ. That, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 9, that Timothy wasn't called to this holy calling because of any righteousness in himself. He was called because God chose him before time began for this calling. And so he's to remain rooted in that, not any of his own merit. He's looked to Christ, not to look to himself to be encouraged. And so there's this spiritual advice, but then there's also practical, right? As Christians, we aren't just these these hyper-spiritual people. There's very practical advice on how to go about being responsible and being good stewards. And so that's in verse 2, where Paul instructs Timothy to teach the doctrine that Paul himself has taught Timothy, teach that to other qualified men who will therefore go and teach even more qualified men. That the minister of God is to teach others and have them teach others, right? That's the practical side. In order to help Timothy with his ministry, it would make sense that there's more and more qualified men that will help shepherd the church. And stealing an analogy from Costi Hinn, I think this is pointing to the fact that ministers are to be makers of stallions, not mules. Stallions, not mules. And so the idea is a mule is a very effective pack animal. It can carry a lot of weight, but it can't reproduce. It actually can't have offspring. But a stallion can. A stallion actually can, can multiply. And so the idea here in ministerial discipleship is that it's not enough just to impart truth That truth is to be imparted to people that impart the truth to others. That's part of the job description of a faithful pastor. And it's part of the description of faithful discipleship overall. If you want a summary of what your discipleship should look like in the family, in the church, it's this. It's teach other people the truth of God's word, but then ensure also they are teaching others. It's a multiplication effect, not a dead end. So think stallion, not mule. So as we we look at verse 3, getting into maybe the the meat of the text, we read, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So, Paul reiterates the same command he gave to Timothy back in chapter 1, uh, verse 8, which is share in suffering. Suffer well. That Timothy is to continue to be faithful even when it's difficult. And to help explain this to him, Paul gives three examples. The soldier, the athlete, and the hardworking farmer. So the soldier is to be laser-focused on the duties he has been given by his commanding officer. He's not to be distracted. So in a similar way, the minister of God is to be laser-focused on his responsibilities before the Lord. He isn't to be distracted by civilian pursuits, pursuits that aren't 
fitting for a soldier in Christ. Then the second example, the athlete. The athlete must compete according to the rules to win the prize. You can't cheat at an athletic event and expect to win. So, therefore, the minister of God, even when it's hard, is to continue to follow God's rules and God's way of doing ministry, not take shortcuts, not adopt worldly philosophies, that they are to continue to be faithful even if there's no good that seems to be coming out of it. And that last example, the, the hardworking farmer, that we see that that farmer continues to labor in his field knowing that there will be a future crop. He, he, he scatters his seed even though he knows that the seed doesn't grow in a day. Similarly, the, the, the minister continues to be faithful in, in guarding the flock that he has been entrusted with even if there's no visible fruit for months, for years, because he knows that there is a reward at minimum for eternity for faithfulness. That is what he's going to, to look for. And we can spend a long time on these examples, but, but Paul, he, he moves on. He gives them, and then he says, think over these things. Timothy's to meditate on them, because they're, they're like pr- proverbs for pastors. They're principles that, that pastors are to live by and think about and meditate on, and then apply, knowing that the Lord is kind and will give them understanding in these areas. So, in verse 8, now we, we've talked through three theoretical examples. Paul gives two tangible examples of this faithfulness despite suffering idea. We read, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So first, Paul directs Timothy to remember his Savior, Jesus Christ, and specifically to remember the resurrection of Christ. That though Christ died, he rose from the grave. That the greatest suffering, dying under the wrath of God, led to the greatest glory, which is defeating death. In God's economy, the most bitter and tough seeds of trial often lead to the most fruitful and beautiful trees. And therefore, Timothy is to look at Christ's example and be encouraged and motivated. Additionally, Christ is the seed of David. This is the promised Messiah that is going to bring about restoration of all things. And so if if this promised Messiah has to die and then rise, Timothy shouldn't be surprised if he also follows that same pattern, that death and resurrection pattern. Then after Christ, Paul talks about himself. He's suffering in chains, like a common criminal for the sake of the gospel. And yet, instead of being discouraged and being hopeless, Paul knows the word of God is not bound. No earthly prison, no earthly power can stop God's word from going out. It will not return void. Therefore, Paul is is not hopeless in jail, in prison. He has great hope because he knows that the Lord is continuing to work, right? And so we see this theme, like I said, this death and resurrection motif, that though Christ died, he rose. Though Paul is suffering in chains, the word of God is not bound. Though the hardworking farmer might not see fruit, there will be fruit. So the Christian life, therefore, is not about faithfulness apart from suffering. It's faithfulness through suffering, that we actually grow. There's There's seeds of fruit that get planted through tribulations. And in those, I think we need to reformat how we we think of faithfulness during those times as an expectant faithfulness, an expectant waiting. That we actually expect 
the Lord to bring about restoration and healing during our trials. That that is how he works. That he often brings us very low in order to raise us up. That he often kills us, in a sense, in order to rise us into newness of life. That is how we are saved, and that is how we continue to operate as a, as a Christian. And so, for you, during your suffering, there should be an expectation of future deliverance. Uh, I think Jeremiah Burroughs says it well. He says, when God intends the greatest mercies to his people, he first usually brings them into very low conditions. Usually the people of God, before the greatest comforts, have the greatest afflictions and sorrows. And so the Christians should be expectant sufferers. And that enables them to not only have hope, it enables them to do their best and be faithful during the suffering. Instead of giving up, laying down, saying it's never going to be better, the Christian can press forward in faithfulness because he knows whether in this life or the next, he's guaranteed to be healed. And so with all these examples, these five examples set before Timothy, uh, Paul sort of ends this mini section with, an encouragement, and then a warning. So we read in in verse 11, the saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And so we see this maybe early Christian hymn that, that Paul is quoting, this trustworthy statement. It has two encouragements, and then two warnings. So starting with the encouragements, we see that if we die with Christ, we will be raised with Christ. If we endure, we will also reign with him, like we've been talking about. As our Lord says in the Gospels, if you lose your life for my sake, you will gain it. That Timothy is to remember that even if he is faithful to the point of death, that it's worth it, it's good, that he has future eternal hope. And that is an encouragement to keep pressing forward. But then there's also a warning if that encouragement is not heeded, that if we deny Christ, he will also deny us. As the Lord says that he who denies him before man, Christ will also deny before his Father in heaven. And that we can't expect to deny God and not reap a fruit of that denial. If we are faithless without faith, the Lord remains faithful to his warning. If we are faithless, if someone is faithless, the Lord cannot deny himself. He cannot go back on his word. There will be consequences for a lack of faith. And this is not saying you can lose your salvation. What it's saying is that our response to the gospel matters. Our response to trials matter. How we continue to persevere by the grace of God is the means by which we go through this entire life. And so we are to take these warnings not as a a scare tactic, but as as a means of encouragement to be faithful during trials. And I think this practically gives us um, an example uh, of the fact that we need both encouragement and warning in the Christian life. That I think we can often lean only one way or another, very prone to only want to be encouraged or to give encouragement, or vice versa, only want to give warnings or receive warnings. However, Paul is showing us here that that we need both. We need to be able to wield both swords in situations where wisdom calls for it, right? Some situations call for warning, some call for encouragement. And I think in our culture specifically, we have a tendency to be encouragement-only people. We want others, when they are going through a hard time, to feel better, 
we really want them to just, just perk up and not to be so down. It doesn't feel good to deliver a warning. However, that's, that's extremely dangerous because often a warning is exactly what people need. Imagine if you were sick and you go to the doctor and the test comes back positive and the doctor says, you're all good, good to go. The doctor needs to be able to deliver hard news. Likewise, the Christian in our discipleship relationships, we need to be able to deliver hard news if the situation demands it. And it might be tough, but it is the most loving thing to do. And likewise, we need to be able to receive warning, that it is the sign of maturity for someone not to receive an encouragement, because we all like that. It is the sign of maturity to receive a warning or an admonition from a brother or sister well, because it is for our good. Just as God is a loving Father who delights to encourage us to continue to be faithful through encouragement, He's a loving Father that encourages us to remain faithful through warnings. And so we need to be able to give and receive both in our Christian walk. Now in this, this last section, um, Paul explains more the, the specific duties that Timothy has while he is going through this trial as a minister, namely, rightly teaching God's word and pursuing personal holiness himself. And so we read in verse 14, remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So Timothy is to to remind the congregation of the same thing that he was just commanded to remember by Paul a couple verses ago, namely this, this whole death and resurrection motif. And he's to remind them and instruct them not to quarrel over useless things, but to speak true words, not to speak empty words. Because he says that in verse 15, Timothy is to rightly handle the word of truth. It's the opposite of speaking useless words. And so he is to interpret, apply, exhort the congregation using God's word. That is the job of the ministers, to wield the sword, wield the word correctly. And this implies, uh, I think it's worth noting, that there is a right way and a wrong way to handle God's word. It's not just up to your own interpretation or, or whim or whatever you feel, that you can rightly handle the word of truth and you can wrongly handle the word of truth. And that when ministers teach the word and when any Christian teaches the word, we are instructed to handle it rightly and be approved because the only other option is to not handle it rightly and be condemned. And this shouldn't intimidate us, but it should actually give us a great desire to handle God's word appropriately. And it should put us on guard because we know that people can't just say that's just your own interpretation, that there is a right and wrong interpretation of God's word. And though this also clarifies the primary job of the minister. The primary job of the minister is not to be well-liked or charismatic, though he should be liked by his flock. The primary job of the minister is not to be a really motivational speaker, someone who makes his congregation feel good, although I'm not denying the need for emotional engagement. The primary job of the minister is to rightly handle God's word and to shepherd the flock through the word of God. And that's the direction Paul is giving Timothy. Because on the flip side of that, he shows the wrong usage of God's word in the next couple of verses. So we, we read in verse 16, But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, 
saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. So these are false teachers teaching lies in the church. They're teaching that the bodily resurrection has already occurred. And as a side note, I think this is helpful to us, that if if you hear anyone teaching that we've already been bodily resurrected or every page of scripture has already happened and there's no future second of coming of Christ that awaits us, they are teaching false doctrine in that there is a future hope for the Christian, a future resurrection that we look forward to. And so we see the negative consequences, though, broadly of this false teaching. It spreads easily, it upsets the faith of some, and it leads to ungodliness. And I think that last point is really important. False teaching leads to sin. False teaching leads to evil. It's, it's extremely dangerous. It's not innocent. And, and in this, I, false teaching is, is more than just saying what's false. That's certainly true. But false teaching is also omitting what is good and claiming that it's comprehensive. Said, said differently, it's not just enough to avoid saying what's false. The, the faithful handling of God's word requires saying what's true, what's beautiful, what's right. There's a commission of teaching what's wrong, but there's an omission as well. And that also leads to evil. Therefore, rightly handling God's word, especially in our culture, it's not safe. Because you're going to say things that ma- like marriage is between one man and one woman for all of life that divorce is an abomination and the Lord hates it, you're, you're going to say things like that that are unpopular. But that is the call for us to rightly use God's word. It's not just avoiding what's bad, it's actually proclaiming what's, what's good. And so, therefore, Timothy must do his best to, to teach God's word rightly. And while that is directed at him as a minister, this principle applies to all of us as well. We are charged by God to do our best. Think about simple phrase, but ask yourself that question. Are you doing your best as a Christian? Are you taking God's word and doing your best to apply it to your spheres of responsibility that God has given you? So a couple examples for for husbands, this means intentionally doing your best to unconditionally love your wife. Do your best. That when it's been a long day, that you're tired, you don't feel like it, Your charge before God is not to make that excuse, but to do your best to love your wife. And for wives, likewise, you are to unconditionally respect your husband. That you can't have a false standard of expecting unconditional love, but actually putting this conditional respect onto your husband. And to singles as well, you are to do your best to make the best use of your singleness. That it is a period of waiting, It is a period where discontentment easily can creep in, but you are to do your best to take advantage of your God-given time in growth and holiness, serving the church, and all these things. And these are just a couple examples, but um, you have to think over what this means for your life. How are you to do your best? Because our motivation in this is the fact that, that Christ did his best on our behalf, that he received the toughest call, the toughest act of obedience through the toughest suffering, and he was faithful, that he went to the cross, he set his face like a flint for our sakes, dying on our behalf, right? And so he did his best, and therefore we have his power in us to do our best as well. And this idea of of doing our best before the Lord brings us to the unfortunate topic of excuses, that excuses 
are the direct enemy of faithful stewardship of responsibility, doing your best. That you will always be tempted to excuses because that is in us as sinful humans. You think about the garden. Oh, it is this woman you gave me. That's why I ate. Or, oh, it was the snake. That's why I ate. That from Genesis 3 onward, humans are, are wired by the fall to want to make excuses. And it's very acceptable in the church. And you think about it, though, how, how weird this would be going back to the examples Paul gave earlier. What if the, the soldier said to his commanding officer, I'll do my best to obey you as long as I fully and completely agree with your orders. Or if the athlete said, I'll do my best in this event, but only if I get to pick the rules and it's not too hard on my body. That would be ridiculous. They know that they have a goal and they're going to overcome any obstacle to get to that goal. And I think for the Christian, we should view it as our duty to do that as well. And so a, a simple way to think through this is to think about recently things that have bothered you, tr small trials, even the littlest of trials, sin, and, and think about where your mind goes. Do you look inward, take responsibility, say, how can I do better? How can I continue to do my best and be faithful before the Lord? Or do you look outward and say, oh, if only he had done this, or if she did this, I could have responded better. Or if this circumstance had changed, right? It's the difference between faithfulness and excuse-making. And as Christians, we have not been saved to make excuses. We've, we've been saved to do our best, to, to serve our Lord by his grace. And so that is the charge. And I'm sure I'm way over time, so we'll, we'll try and finish these last couple verses. Um, so we, we talked about the specific call to handle God's word appropriately, and then Timothy's call to pursue personal holiness in the last couple of verses. So in verse 19, we read, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And so Paul reminds Timothy to not be discouraged that there is false teaching going on in the church. The Lord knows who are truly his, and Timothy can tell that by if they're departing or fleeing from iniquity or not. And so, therefore, Timothy himself is to flee from iniquity. He is, to, to use this example or analogy uh, that Paul gives, he's to be a vessel of honorable use. So there's this house, right, that there's gold and silver objects or vessels that are used for distinguished things, and there's these wood and clay objects or vessels that are used for undistinguished or mean things. It's an analogy to God's house, the visible church, in which there's objects of, of honorable use, God's people, the faithful ones, and there's objects of dishonorable use, those that, like Hymenaeus and Philetus, are false teachers within the church. And so Timothy isn't to be surprised. He himself is to flee from these things and therefore show himself to be one of God's faithful people. And so in all of this, just to, just to wrap up, this call to do our best this is the call, and yet we're to fall back on verse 1, when we fail, for we will, and that we are to be strengthened not by our ability to succeed in this endeavor perfectly, but by the grace of Christ, who succeeded on our behalf. And in that, just a last thought is, it's not only the grace that we rely on to be forgiven, although that is truly a reality, 
It's the grace that we rely on to get back up after we fail and to continue climbing the mountain of sanctification. That doing our best is responding well even when we fail to do our best by the grace of God. So with that, let's pray, and then we'll get into discussion. Or we'll sing. Father, uh, thank you that you have sent your Son to do what we cannot. Thank you, Lord, that as we have been saved, as we have been made new, you did not return us to a, a purposeless, aimless life until heaven. That you saved us so that we would actually be able to follow after you. That we are free from sin and we are able to do the good works that you have prepared for us before time began. That is a tremendous honor, Lord. And I thank you that that's not a hopeless call. It's not a call that requires perfection because we cannot do it, but it is a call that is real and possible by your grace. For we are filled with your power, we are filled with your holiness, and we are filled with your mind and your spirit and the new heart that you have given us. And so I ask that, Lord, we would do our best with confidence and think over these things and how to apply them in all of these areas. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.